0: Yeah, hello there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? We have quite the lengthy episode. I'll try to keep it uh, <laughs> under 5 million hours. But we have the new narrative surrounding the Nord Stream coming out from the Pentagon. We have Ukraine's coming counteroffensive. We have Tucker Carlson releasing footage from January 6th, and then we have China brokering a major deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news. We'll try to get through this quick because we have big segments to talk about. We have Iran and America making their own deal uh, for the exchange of prisoners. So that's a good thing. Very much overshadowed by what we'll be talking about later on in this episode, but still a good thing. We have a wave of bank failures hitting the United States. We have Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failing just in the last 48 hours, I believe. And it's looking like a number of other banks are on their way. We'll see if they actually do fail. But you have First Republic Bank, PacWest Bank suffering major losses, and a number of others taking major hits as well all across the board, mainly regional banks. You have Silicon Valley Bank in particular, one of the two that failed, that was the biggest bank failure since 2008 and 2008 wasn't exactly the best of times for the banks and i'm assuming that that the number one will be lehman brothers but with well, this is hinting at a larger recession looming over the united states and when i say depression i mean depression because you know we're already in a recession it's just how far down will we go before we get to the recovery phase? And this looks like we're getting to that point where you know whenever you see those graphs of economic activity right before a a recession, you see it sort of sort of curves at the top and it starts going down just a little bit. and then it just you just fall off the cliff and then you you hit the bottom. It doesn't happen all at once. So I think that that might be what we're looking at here. We're sort of at the the tip the tippy top of the peak sliding downwards. And this is the slide, the slip and slide we're going on right now. Now, I'll try to make the most of this and because, you know, when these things happen, prices of other things come down. I'm going to see if I can get me some property. But I hope you are prepared, my lovely listeners. I can't tell you how to prepare because, quite frankly, I don't know if I'm prepared, but I'll do what I can. And so this is something, definitely something to pay attention to. Uh, Another thing to pay attention to while we're still on this story is that the FDIC is talking about insured accounts and using money from insured accounts, that being $250,000 and below, to cover the losses of the larger accounts in, particularly in Silicon Valley Bank. The issue with that is that 90% of the bank accounts in Silicon Valley Bank were above that threshold. So... You're talking about using, literally using the money from the little guy to cover the losses of the big boys. So we'll see what comes there. Uh, I'd imagine more of that is going to follow because you have people who are generally pro-state intervention in the economy talking about the need for the federal government to intervene now to prevent more bank failures in the future. The problem with that is you can't, you can't undo bad practices. Like they were down like thirteen billion, but you couldn't see it because they didn't have to report that as a loss because it was investments. Because everyone knows that banks take the money you have and they invested. They were down thirteen million in their investments, but because they hadn't, you know, closed out, as in withdrawn from the investment, they still had their money tied up in the investment. They didn't have to count it as a loss. So. The federal, the federal government can't undo that bad deal. They can't undo it. it someone's got to foot the bill. And at a certain point, if you have more of these sort of bank failures and you, you're going to get a situation where people are like, okay, I need to go make sure my money is safe. You'll end up with bank runs. Now, we'll see what happens to the Fed itself in all this as part of its mandate for existence was to prevent bank runs and to keep people uh, having faith in the banking system. Also, their constant rate hikes for interest rates has probably caused a lot of financial issues with these larger banks who run on margins as is, or in the case of Silicon Valley, at a loss. So, and quite frankly, we I think we should abolish the Fed anyway. Why? What? good is there for our society and having these handful of people decide for us what the interest rate is why can the interest rate not just be determined by the market forces of people putting money into the bank or not having money in the bank and if there's lots of capital in the banks well interest rates go down because people are saving money which means there's lots of capital available for investing And if people are spending money, then the interest rates go down, which means you're incentivized for short-term production, you know, and there's not as much capital in the bank for you to invest, so the price of a loan has to go up. Simple things, the way we used to do it, and we were perfectly fine doing it that way. Why Why are we now in this situation? Where we're all obsessed over what Jerome Powell is going to do and what, what Janet Yellen is going to do and how they're going to and whether or not they're going to get this situation under control that they should never have had the power to even contemplate that, quite frankly, uh, and they should have it taken away from them if through no other mean if through no other merit than the fact that they have failed to control inflation, they have failed to get these situations under control, which is the reason we're about to go through one of. And all history will show whether or not it ends up being the worst economic downturn in American history. This institution has to go. So we'll see what comes from these banks. FDIC says that it's it's going to use the money from these insured accounts to cover the big boys, uh, but it's it's definitely not a bailout. And you have Janet Yellen saying it's there's not going to be a bailout for Silicon Valley. But we know what this is: is the bailout. So we'll see what becomes of this, because they can't bail out all the banks at a certain point. It's just. Nature will just take its course, so we will definitely see what occurs. And we have Xi Jinping being reappointed for his third term uh, as the leader of the People's Republic of China. Each term is five years long, so he'll be here for what till 2028 about. And that's probably good for China. He's done well for them so far. And lastly, we have, I believe it was Biden, undoing some of the restrictions that he put in place on energy production in America, specifically as it pertains to drilling leases on federal land. He's undone some of those restrictions in Alaska to enable a a large energy project to go forward in Alaska. Now, why he's chosen Alaska instead of, I don't know, leaving it alone or even producing oil in the United States, you know, the continental United States or hell, undoing restrictions on all of the country so we can have a massive energy boom. I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but at the very least we have something. And then you're going to have people touting this as, oh, he's, he's doing great for the country when no, he undid the problem that he created but only partially, because it's only Alaska instead of the rest of the country. So, uh, oh boy. We, we, have, we have quite the fun times ahead of us in America. But now, we can get into the bigger stories we'll be covering today. And we'll get into that in just a moment. All righty, let's start with this story right here, which is the New Nord Stream Narrative that the Pentagon is trying to put out there as though it was the, the official story, what, what really happened with Nord Stream. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, the Pentagon is saying that a, <laughs> a pro-Ukraine group attacked the Nord Stream pipelines. The pipelines, which, mind you, were resting at the bottom of the Baltic Sea and were covered in concrete a pro ukraine group just manifested and somehow planted explosives powerful enough to get through the concrete and and capable of getting all the way through the the depths of the black sea to the pipelines in the first place and then they were able to detonate that and they had certainty they had somehow had the ability to know that the explosive that they'd sent went where they wanted it to go a pro-Ukraine group, as though this was just some, some group of radicals out there uh, trying to sabotage the pipeline. And of course, it was a group of radicals, just not in the way that they're painting this out to be. It's such a transparent lie. It's it's amazing that people would even bother taking this seriously. It's amazing that they themselves s- take this seriously. Yeah, but... On with the story, a new intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials suggests that a pro-Ukraine group of likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines last year. And it says intelligence has reached uh, U.S. intelligence reached no firm conclusions. And I, I love I just love that they have no firm conclusions now but when they, last year, when they were all blaming Russia for it, they were more than happy and were more than capable of coming to firm conclusions back then. What changed? Uh, oh, the Seymour Hersh story came out and put the blame where the blame goes, which is on the United States. And now to try to cover their uh, their rear ends, so to speak, they've come up with this new narrative as a sort of... Uh, To bridge the gap between the blatant propaganda that they were giving us all last year since the bombings happened, and the Seymour Hersh story, which, for those unfamiliar, Seymour Hersh published an article which basically laid out that, yes, it was the United States who did it, the U.S. sent a diver team that planted the bomb on the the concrete surrounding the pipelines, but they were not the ones who detonated it. It was Norway. Norway flew a plane over the pipelines. It dropped a buoy, those big metal things that float in the in the water. And the buoy sent out a signal. It started sending out a special frequency that triggered the C4 that the U.S. diver team had planted a while before. And then the explosion went off. That's the gist of the Seymour Hirsch story. Now, prior to that, it was Russia did it, Russia did it, Russia did it. Putin's a madman, Putin's a madman, Putin's a madman. Uh, They blew up their own pipeline. So it seems to me that this story here is literally just an attempt to bridge the gap between the propaganda that we were given and what I personally believe to be the truth, which is the Seymour Hersh story. Now, or at the very least, something close to the Seymour Hersh story. I don't know if that's exactly how it played out. But it seems plausible in in that it was the United States. Who else would have done it? I mean, the U.S. threatened to do this for years, years, threatened to do something about the pipelines. And Biden in particular saying that if in the event there was a war between Russia and Ukraine, he would take out the pipelines. And now when there's a war between Russia and Ukraine, the pipelines are suddenly taken out and we're supposed to not believe it was the United States. That doesn't make any sense. But I'll digress. That's what this seems like to me. They're, they're trying to cover their tracks here. So to keep people believing the official narrative, because the old official narrative doesn't hold up anymore to the scrutiny of Seymour Hersh's story, because Seymour Hersh's story is more believable than Russia did it. So, because when you, again, when you look at the details of the story, the pipelines are underwater, like really far down underwater and covered with concrete, you need explosives powerful enough to get through the concrete and to damage the pipeline in one go. And you would have to have the motive and the means of getting there, right? No regular person is just going to row a boat or, or I guess no, no regular person going to get on their boat and turn that motor on and go tens of miles out hundred miles out. Right over the pipelines and drop some random bomb that <laughs> they cooked up in their garage to to you know screw to put the screws to Russia, but to put the screws to Germany. Nobody in the going to do that. Nobody <laughs> nobody has it in them to do that. They might they might want they might want to do something, but that specifically, oh, in the water. You you're not going to go to I don't know the receiving station in Germany and and bomb that what you know where the pipelines come up out of the water where you can get to it by land and then drive off. You know you're not you're not going to do that on the, the the sending station in Russia where the pipelines go into the water. No, you're going to you're going to sail your boat out. Ride over the pipe Never mind whether or not people would even be able to find the pipelines. And to the point where they could sail and then stop their boat right above the pipelines like let's really think about what our government is trying to tell us here they're trying to tell us that some group of radicals russian and ukrainian nationals pro-ukraine group they did they just they just got in their boat they turned the engine on and then they they came out right above the pipelines and they just dropped the bomb and you know it was a real tragedy for us all yeah How'd they find the pipelines? How'd they find the exact spot in the middle of the ocean where the pipelines were? How did they get the bomb? What bomb did they use? Because it had to have been waterproof so that it could get through the water. And it would have to be remote detonated so that you could blow it up when it got down to the pipelines. What did they use? How did they do it? Did did this pro Ukraine group have its own diver team? Like, it's such blatant propaganda, and it's it's insane that they even had the gall to say this. Yeah, uh, but um, we know the truth. The United States did it. It's 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 not up for discussion. <laughs> the discussion is in how the United States did it. Now, I we could go over the Seymour Hersh story. We could believe something that we did it in a different way. Perhaps the United States was directly responsible for it, rather than indirectly with, you know, Norway being involved. Perhaps there was a different player in NATO involved altogether. But one way or the other, it was the United States. There's just no getting around that. Russia didn't do it. Germany certainly didn't do it. Did Poland do it? I don't know. Maybe. But Ukraine and Russia, pro-Ukraine group, come on now. But, uh, and... Continuing on with this story, they say that there was no evidence that the Ukrainian President Zelensky, his military high command, or any other Ukrainian official were directly involved or had any connection to the attackers. So, I disagree with that on the grounds that they had plenty of connections to the US government, and it was likely the US government who did this. So, they're not, again, they're not entirely wrong when they say that a pro Ukraine group did this. They're just not being entirely honest because we, we are the pro-Ukraine group. What bigger pro-Ukraine group is there than the current slate of people running the U.S. government who has handed Ukraine $125 billion with another $9 billion on the way, $9.5 billion. So, you know, that'll be, uh, what, $134.5 billion soon, if it isn't already. I've almost lost track. That much money, millions of artillery shells, millions of rounds of small arms. We've we've organized the sending of hundreds of tanks and armored vehicles to them. We're debating giving them fighter jets. We've given them air defense systems. What bigger pro-Ukraine group is there than the current U.S. government? There is none. There really isn't. I I don't even think the Ukrainian government is that pro-Ukraine. Judging by the way they waste Ukrainian lives, but then again, they do it at our behest, so I guess you can't blame them too much on that, but a pro-Ukraine group was in fact responsible for the bombing, I gotta give it to them, they at least got that fact right, it just wasn't the Russians, and it wasn't the Ukrainians, it was the United States, but now, let's get over to the next story here, while we're still talking about Ukraine, we can get into the talk about their coming counteroffensive. And there has been talk for the past few weeks. I've sort of just sat back and let more evidence of that materialize. And I think a little bit, I think a sufficient amount of evidence for it has materialized now. So here we go. Because over the last few weeks, there's been increasing talk of another Ukrainian counteroffensive. And at first, its primary aim seemed to be to push Russia all the way back to Crimea, which in and of itself was unrealistic, unless the Russians chose to withdraw, which they don't seem to be showing signs of wanting to do anymore. I think they are content with their battle lines right now. They withdrew from Kharkov, they withdrew from Kherson after defending it. And no one talks about the initial Kherson offensive, uh, where they the Ukrainians doubled what I thought their losses were in a matter of two weeks, like, at that point. It's just crazy thinking back on the development of my views on Ukraine's casualties, because back then I thought Ukraine's casualties were like 15,000. And then I see the carousel offense begin. It goes up to twelve thousand in the span of two weeks. I'm like, that's double your losses. And then we were going with thirty to forty thousand for like a few months after that. Then we get to November, December, and we find out that they had lost, uh, in terms of casualties, one hundred sixty thousand men. Ursula von der Leyen saying they had lost a hundred thousand dead. I'm like, okay, that's a ma- that's triple what I thought. So we're just gonna go up. And now. They're probably somewhere between two hundred and 300,000. And uh, I'm probably still underestimating their losses. But I can't imagine this is going to go particularly well for them. So when the Russians choose to stay, wherever the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians cannot force them out. And that's sort of been the rule throughout this entire war. Where Russia chooses to leave, the Ukrainians can push them out. But where Russia chooses to stay, Ukraine can't force them out. But yet, wherever the Ukrainians choose to stay, the Russians just spam artillery on them until they have no choice but to leave. That's been sort of the the iron rule of the war, is Russia can go wherever the hell it wants with enough force and firepower, and the Ukrainians can only go where the Russians allow them to. And Russia's only been constricted by the number of troops it had, and the vastness of the battle line. It's a thousand miles. So we've had lots of Ukrainian counter-offensives, which have been hyped up because of the land taken from Russia's withdrawals, but where the casualties just go ignored. And I think that at this point in the game, that can no longer be the case, especially with the Battle of Bakhmut. Because now... The objective of this supposed counteroffensive is not to push Russia back to Crimea, or at the very least, that's now been pushed back to a secondary objective of the offensive. The primary objective now is to break the Russian lines around Bakhmut, or so it seems. Again, we, we don't know exactly what the Ukrainians are intending here. We don't even know if this offensive will actually materialize, but it's looking like it may and when you see the situation around bakhmut when you see the losses ukraine is willing to suffer fighting for this city it's not out of the question that they might go for an offensive here so assuming that this offensive happens what to, what is its objective it they want to break the lines around bakhmut uh, and we talked a bit about how bakhmut was falling into a cauldron well they are in a cauldron now and it's not like a it's not like a, a, a pincer where you can you can see how thin the, the envelopment is where like i'm at the comparison between putting your thumb and your index finger almost together you know there's still a little bit of space but you can see the pocket but with your thumb and your finger as sort of the battle line of the envelopment that's very thin you can break through that that's not what we're dealing with with Bakhmut we're dealing with if you put your right fist and your left fist almost together you put your you put the knuckles of your thumbs together but you keep your fists apart that's the pocket we have in bakhmut that's the pocket we have in bakhmut so it's not you're not dealing with oh if i just break through this uh, uh these 3 miles of russian lines i'll be able to get through to bakhmut no you're dealing with an entire uh, essentially the front line has moved past bakhmut and it's sort of like a rubber band where if you take a if you hold a rubber band still and then you pull on one part long enough you'll get this really long corridor where the rubber band is stretched that's sort of what we're dealing with and bakhmut is on the very end of the ba- the rubber band so in order to get to bakhmut you have to go through this wall of russian lines not Not this tiny little pin. So You have to go through the wall of Russian troops. And remember the iron rule here, where the Russians choose to stay, Ukraine cannot force them out. So, I am very doubtful about the prospects of success for this offensive if it happens. But, given that the counteroffensive is now being talked about as if it was going to break through these lines, we can safely say... That if that is truly the objective of this offensive, we can safely say that Ukraine has no intention of falling back from Bakhmut. We can safely say that Bakhmut is indeed of some great strategic importance to Ukraine. Uh the, the, the new narrative surrounding this, because we're talking about new narratives now, the narrative surrounding Bakhmut now is that it's it's not that important. It's just it's just symbolic. You know, we're bleeding Russia dry in Bakhmut, even though it's the Ukrainians who are taking a disproportionate amount of losses here from art- Russian artillery spam. It's, it's not even close. And that's before the encirclement, which looks like it's getting closer by the second. And the Ukrainians know it's getting closer. But if now they're planning a counteroffensive at Bakhmut, well, we can say safely. They have no intention of pulling back. This indeed has strategic importance to the Ukrainians, such that they are willing to take these massive losses, these disproportionate losses, and that they are willing to mount another offensive to take back the land around Bakhmut and to sort of prolong the battle here. Because that's that's the best case scenario. Because when we look at the nature of the war, when we look at the nature of breakthroughs in this war, it's more akin to World War One. And that's been the comparison throughout the entirety of the war. It's been the comparison throughout the Ukraine war in the Donbass for the last eight years. It's like World War One. It's trench warfare. You don't have this massive breakthrough where you just start running behind the enemy lines and taking all this territory. And that's sort of what made the gains that Ukraine had back in September with their offensives where Russia withdrew. That's what made those so significant, the capture of territory. The war in general doesn't go like that. It's, again, more like World War I. You get a breakthrough, you take a mile or two or five, and then that's about it. And then you're you're back down, you're bogged down, it's back to the slog, back to the grind. And that's what's likely to happen, even if they are successful. They will take back some of the ground around Bakhmut, some of the defensive positions flanking Bakhmut, and they can prolong the battle of Bakhmut. For how long? I don't know. I don't know. But that's that's the best case scenario if they manage to do this. The, the best, best case scenario is they push Russia back by a few miles away from Bakhmut itself, rather than you know, straightening out the lines to where the Ukrainians uh, have positions flanking Bakhmut instead of Bakhmut being in a, a straight-up cauldron. That's the best-case scenario here, when we look at how the war has gone, you, for the most part, with regards to these type of breakthroughs. Uh, but one of the things we can also take away from this counteroffensive, which looks like it's being prepared for Bakhmut, is that those troops we were talking about last week who were withdrawing from the city did so without orders because there's no way you're going to reinforce Bakhmut and prepare a counteroffensive to take back ground around Bakhmut at the same time that you're allowing troops to withdraw well, those troops left without order. So it, it was a mutiny. Now from what we can tell, the mutiny was on a much smaller scale than it could have been, which is good for the Ukrainian defenses. But if they go for this offensive, I think that might undermine their defenses. Their offense might undermine their defense. And here's why I think that. You see, around Bakhmut, around Bakhmut, the Ukrainians have about twenty brigades, though a lot of them are greatly under strength. Ordinarily, having that many brigades would mean Ukraine had would have a force of 60,000 men. And uh, and I'll just take a moment to say I'm happy to finally have some numbers to work with for the number of men in Bakhmut. We've been we've been struggling to get some solid numbers on this for a while now. But 20 brigades, each one have each brigade having around 300 men, that would usually mean Ukraine had a force of 60,000 men. But remember these brigades, they're not new brigades they're the same people who have been fighting around bakhmut the same brigades that have been being pushed back as bakhmut has been falling into this cauldron so that means they've been suffering these horrendous losses so a lot of these brigades are under strength a good number of them being at half so instead of the 60,000 we we'd probably be dealing with perhaps 30 to 40,000 men now that's still a very sizable force very sizable. And it would also corroborate that 30,000 figure we had to work with regarding the number of men that Ukraine had in the Battle of Bakhmut a few months ago, where uh, Alexander and the Duran put out the the range of estimates, which was anywhere from 30,000 to 100,000. So this seems to corroborate that the lower end of that figure that we've been sort of going off of ourselves and, of course, of that 30,000, it should actually be considered, uh, of that thirty to 40,000, that 10,000 are in the pocket, in Bakhmut. So now you're dealing with, perhaps, instead of thirty to 40,000 men for the offensive, you're probably dealing with 30,000 or less for the offensive. If we are to assume that the these divisions have two-thirds of them. I guess divisions and ultimately it sort of takes up, but the brigades, if we assume the brigades have at least two thirds of their strength, then that would mean that instead of 60,000, they'd have 40,000 of the 40,000, 10,000 are in the pocket, which leaves you with 30,000 to attack. Now there's a good chance that they're below that. And the lower the number is the weaker, the offensive power of this offensive is going to be. But it's again nice to have these numbers to work with, and it's still, even on the lower end of things, a very sizable force when you look at the numbers involved in most battles in the war. So with 30 to 40,000 men here, we can also assume that there is a comparable number of troops on the Russian side, 30 to 40,000, which again puts us probably at around the 100,000 mark. The uh, I'd say 80,000 would be a good guess. Uh, Assume that, uh, that there is literally even on both sides rather than the Russians outnumbering Ukraine here. And that's also a possibility. But 80,000, my goodness, 80,000 is huge. 80,000 is huge. Uh, so that's what we're dealing with in terms of Ukraine's ability to attack. twenty to 30,000 men available for the attack because I don't think the men in the pocket of Bakhmut are going to be moving too much from their defensive positions uh, they'll get shot uh so that's what we're dealing with those are the reports but if these reports of ukraine preparing for a counter-offensive do prove true and again we can't necessarily confirm that it will be but there's just lots of talk that there is and usually when there's talk of a ukrainian offensive that offensive does manifest the russians are much more secretive with theirs but if these reports prove true and it's not just a it's not just a reshuffling of Ukraine's forces to better defensive positions which it also could be then this is well it this is it if they commit to an offensive here this spring offensive this will be the final decisive battle of the war and it, it, Bakhmut was already shaping up to be that, with how much Ukraine invested into the, the fighting in Bakhmut. There are already 10,000 troops in the pocket itself, which is a testament to just how many men are involved in this. They have 20 brigades. And at full strength, that would have been 60,000. That's already a huge portion of their army. But... You, know, you have 10,000 in danger of encirclement if they don't win here. If they do not push Russia back, that means these 10,000 troops get encircled. Like, because again, we can confirm that if they're gearing up for this offensive, they have no intention of letting Bakhmut go. They have no intention of withdrawing. If they go for the offensive, it's all or nothing. Not necessarily for the troops doing the attacking, but for the troops doing the defending in Bakhmut, because if this offensive peters out, if they just get ground down, shot up, and lit up by the Russian artillery spam, and there will be Russian artillery spam, if this offensive dies down before they can secure significant amounts of land around Bakhmut to the north and the south, covering the flanks, then that means the rest of the lines around Bakhmut will be weak. It'll be weak. If if they commit to this spring offensive, which is what it's being referred to as, then they will exhaust the forces that they have available for defending the territory around Bakhmut. And ju- if the current position of Bakhmut, which is in a cauldron, is anything to go by, they were already struggling to defend the land around Bakhmut as is. Russia outguns Ukraine in artillery, in missiles, and air power. Russian troops are better equipped on the individual level, too. Like, uh, I can't believe there was a, a story talking about how the Russians were fighting with, with shovels and toilets. <laughs> the shovels are a little believable in that they have an engineer corps, which is not meant for combat roles, and the, the Spetsnaz use shovels as, like, a tool. So, that part is more believable than the other, but toilet seats, come on now. Uh, but, uh, back to what we are talking about, the Russians are better equipped. At the individual soldier-to-soldier level, they're better equipped in terms of artillery, missiles, they, they have more machines, tanks, armored vehicles. They are better equipped to fight this war. Which is probably why the losses have been at such a disproportionately... Uh, in russia's favor and remember that all this time even with these massive losses these disproportionate losses on the ukrainian side you have to remember that russia has been the one on the offensive meaning that even uh, that even with all these casualties ukraine has been taking advantage of the defense enjoying all the advantages that come with a well-dug-in position in urban and hilly terrain, even with those terrain advantages. And remember, the city is still the most effective man-made defensive structure. And even with all those advantages that Ukraine has, they have still been the ones suffering the vast majority of the casualties in this war. So if that's what Russian offense does in terms of Ukrainian casualties... I do not expect that an offensive by Ukraine in this area where the Russians have massed their forces, massed their artillery, are focusing and concentrating their air power. I don't see a Ukrainian offensive going very well here. I really don't. They have a well-dug in position when they're on the defensive and the Russians have to blast through that. But if Ukraine goes on the offensive here, then the calculus flips. And the Russians now get to use that terrain against Ukraine. My remember, uh, the Russians have forces inside the city, like it's not just that they're on the outskirts. No, they have troops in the city, fighting for city blocks. So if the Ukrainians are the ones going on the offensive, well, the Russians now get to use the hills, and the urban environment itself to defend. At the same time that they outgun you. Sure, their artillery can't help them when they're in fighting in the inner city. But they can blast you away before you even get there. Like, they have artillery set up to light up the one road that Ukraine has leading into the city. You think they can't just turn that artillery to face people coming in from the east? I mean, from the west, my mistake. The Russians are the one coming in from the east. You think they can just turn their artillery sideways to start blasting this offensive? If Ukraine goes on the offensive, they will lose all of the advantages which have mitigated their losses so far. Every time Ukraine's gone on the offensive, they have taken horrendous losses. Again, just going off the Kherson offensive, where they lost 12,000 men in a week. Well, two weeks, to be fair. That's still 6,000 a week, on average. They... Ukraine does not have the manpower to be losing 6,000 a week. And that was Kherson. That was Kherson. Russian troops were more spread out around every other place on the front than on Bakhmut. So you're talking a higher concentration of artillery fire that is readily available to be thrown at you. This is, it's just not it. It's not going to go well. I really do not see this going well for Ukraine at all. But I I also see the pressure being put on them to do this from the United States, saying that this thing has to come to a, a conclusion by the summer. You have officials in the United States saying this war needs to come to some kind of conclusion by the summer. Now, I think it might come to a conclusion by the summer. Because, and by the summer, it's probably going to be late summer. Because at that point, the Russians are going to be the ones on the move on all fronts. And we will see the collapse of the Ukrainian lines. But this might accelerate that. Because again, if you attack and you start losing thousands of men, almost a thousand men a day, because that's what 6,000 in a week would mean. You're losing almost a thousand men a day with those type of losses. Assuming that they're not bigger because it's Bakhmut. This is the biggest battle of the war. There are, at a bare minimum, 40,000 Russians on the other side waiting for you. This is not the Russians' thin lines everywhere else like there was in Kherson. This is the big battle. Ukraine sends in 20, 30,000 men and they get obliterated. Perhaps they don't all die, but you're talking a massive. Wounded, massive number of wounded. They can't fight anymore. And then you're, and then once those troops are, you know, softened up from their from their own offensive, the Russians start to move in, and the weakened Ukrainian forces cannot hold. They will not be able to hold. They will have exhausted themselves. And then the Russian counterattack to the counterattack might just close the pocket in Bakhmut. So you're talking a built-in loss of 10,000 men on top of whatever Ukraine loses from the offensive. They won't lose all the men, all 20, 30,000. But they could very well lose 10,000, 15,000. They could suffer some horrendous casualties here when you look at the, the mass of Russian forces on the other side the mass of Russian artillery. I think this is going to be the final battle. Uh, I don't, I mean the last, last battle. Obviously there's going to be other battles after this, but as far as meaningful resistance on the part of Ukraine, this is it. If they go for this offensive, but then again, If they don't go for the offensive and they choose to hold Bakhmut forever, well, they'll just be ground down anyway. So it's the difference between a death by a thousand cuts or getting shot. And it looks like Ukraine's going for the bullet. That's what it looks like to me. We might just watch the collapse of Ukraine's lines from this. Because it's not going to succeed at breaking Russia's cauldron. I don't think it will. That's the absolute best case scenario, is that they push Russian troops back. Maybe they encircle a few battalions of Russian troops along the way. But remember, Russia has 400,000 men in reserve just from the October mobilization. And another half million being added on top of that to their standing army. From their remilitarization that they started in December. Ukraine is not winning this. They will not succeed at breaking this collagen. I don't think they will. They might, but I don't think they will. What they will succeed at, either way, is depleting Ukraine's combat forces, which will weaken their lines even further. It, it It's highly likely that this offensive is going to fail, and when it does, Ukraine will have very little left, if anything, left to give. I think this is a mistake. I don't think they should do it. I think, as many others think, they should sue for peace. And we went over the the various ways that the war could end. They could have had Minsk 1, which was just a ceasefire, and go back to the status quo, keep Crimea. Minsk 2 was autonomy for the Donbass ceasefire, and you still keep Crimea, but there's autonomy for the Donbass now. Minsk 3 was the deal that they were going to get with Russia when they were doing the negotiations in March. Of last year and how, how crazy it is now that that deal that deal would be magnificent to get now but they're not going to get that because Minsk 3 the well the unofficial Minsk 3 was you had to recognize the independence of the Donbass republics and Crimea is ours you have to recognize Crimea as a part of Russia if they sue for peace now they'll get unofficial they'll get unofficial Minsk 4 unofficial Minsk 4 is you have recognized not just the independence of the Donbass, but you recognize the Donbass republics, you know, Donetsk, Luhansk, Europe, you, you recognize Zaporozhye and Kherson and Crimea all as a part of Russia in their full territorial expanse. So the entire oblast of all those states, you recognize a part of Russia. That's Minsk 4. That's the deal Ukraine's going to get right now if they sue for peace. If they wait longer, it's Minsk 5, where Russia takes half of Ukraine and their Black Sea coastline. And then there's Minsk 6, which is that there is no Ukraine left at all. They should sue for the peace. They should sue for it while they can. The deal doesn't get better. It really doesn't. But now, we'll move on to our next story which is the January 6th. Specifically, we're talking about Tucker Carlson releasing footage from January 6th. Because last week, he did a two-part segment where he covered the 41,000 hours. Not all of it, obviously, but he's covered specific parts of those 41,000 hours of security footage from the Capitol on January 6th, these... This footage was given to him by by order of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy a few weeks ago. And right off the bat, I'll say this. It proves exactly what I've been saying about the event on the occasions that I have spoken about it, which is that this was no insurrection. This was no insurrection. Like there was this massive crowd. There was violence. There was violence at the front of the crowd. The, there were windows that were broken. There was an altercation at the barricades before that. But aside from those brief instances where, again, nobody got hurt, the same crowd, this massive crowd, and now that the footage is fresh in everyone's minds again from uh, it being talked about again, now that the footage is fresh in your mind, you can see again the crowd that I'm talking about here. You cannot see the ground. There's so many people. A sea of people is what the Capitol was surrounded by. This same crowd that we're told is was a bunch of insurrectionists trying to overthrow the U.S. government. The same crowd, then, who, who they, again, they clearly had the critical mass to completely overrun the Capitol Guard, storm into the Capitol, take all the politicians and give them a French Revolution moment, if you will, they could have done that. They had the numbers. They had the mass. There was nothing the Capitol Police could have done to stop them. They, they were not equipped for that. And quite frankly, they were deliberately not prepared to handle that. When we, and you'll see more of that as we get into the story. But this massive crowd who could have done exactly that, which was causing an insurrection. And at that point, you wouldn't need the military to come in to remove them instead of them just walking away and i've sort of given away why this wasn't an insurrection but you have this crowd they they could do whatever the hell they wanted and yet instead of overthrow the government instead of go find the politicians and you know put them on a, a show trial this crowd they could have they just proceed instead to go on a leisurely stroll through the building and you see that in the footage released that tucker carlson showed and in spite of their overwhelming numbers, like they could have just World War Z the Capitol and the Capitol Police, they have like there was just a ridiculous number of people there. But in spite of their overwhelming numbers, they willingly removed themselves from an area whenever the Capitol Police asked them to. And the Capitol Police didn't ask too much of them to begin with. They, whenever the Capitol Police said, "Hey, can you get out of this room?" They, they moved. They said, "Hey, you can't be in this hallway." And they said, "Okay, we'll just go that way." (laughs) Everywhere the Capitol Police, and you can see this in the footage. Everywhere the Capitol Police asked them not to be. (laughs) Everywhere the Capitol Police asked for them to move, they moved. They removed themselves from wherever the Capitol Police asked them to. up to and including removing themselves from the Capitol building altogether. Which, I remind you, my lovely listeners, is how the January 6th riot ended. They just went home in a single file line, escorted by the police, and the police were just standing there forming the line so that they walked out the door, and they all just walked out the door. One person died at the Capitol, and it was one of the protesters, a woman by the name of Ashley Babbitt. And there was only one Capitol police officer who died later that later that day, after the crowd had already dis, already dispersed. But it was claimed that he had died from a head trauma, but he had actually died from a stroke. Again, this is after the event was over. And Tucker Carlson revealed footage of this same officer being alive and well after the time he was claimed to have died from that supposed head injury. So on two levels, that head injury story was just blown apart. Him being alive after the supposed time he was supposed to be dead. And the fact that he suffered a stroke even later on from that. So this thing just got blown apart. Tucker also showed video of, uh, Jacob Chansley, who was, uh, Became well renowned throughout the halls of the propaganda press as the QAnon Shaman, <laughs> and you could tell it was a, a orchestrated thing because they all came out with the same name for this guy like hours after January sixth happened. The QAnon Shaman, the QAnon Shaman, and so th- that's how you know it was propaganda. <laughs> but uh, and for those who are unaware. This is the guy with the bullhorns and the face paint who you, know, you were led to believe was just the ringleader of this insurrection, assuming you believed it, of course, and perhaps you didn't believe it at all, but that's who he was sort of hyped up to be by the propaganda press, by the politicians, by the January 6th committee, and then you get the footage that Tucker releases, well, that was released and that Tucker shows us, of Jacob Chansley, being escorted around the inside of the building by the Capitol police. The police were, were one, not bothering to try to stop him. It's not not like he was walking at a a more brisk pace than they were, and they just couldn't catch up to him, and they didn't feel like running after him. No, they were side by side. They were walking around. You could even see them trying to open doors for Jacob, to get into the Senate chamber. They were trying to open the doors for him, like, like this was a, a private tour. And when he and a number of other crowd members finally did make it make their way into the Senate chamber, Jacob does a prayer where he then thanked the police for letting them into the building. The police literally did nothing to stop him. And one of the one of the clips that Tucker shows is again of Jacob being escorted around except this time he and his escort come across this this miniature collection of officers there was about 9 officers not counting I believe not counting the ones that were escorting him because he had two by his side at all times there were another 9 officers just standing forming a line you know forming a, a man-made barricade and he just walks through the barricade And they did literally nothing about this guy. They literally do nothing about this guy. They do nothing to stop him. He was complying with them. They could have escorted him out of the building. With that level of compliance, they could have literally said, hey, we need you to get out the building. And they could have just walked him out. Instead, they walk him to every door on the Senate chamber until one of the doors opens for him. And then they let him into the Senate chamber but he's an insurrectionist. Would that not make the, the police that led him to the Senate chamber instead of leading him out of the building? Because he was complying with them. He was, he was allowing himself to be escorted by them. And they just let him walk around the Capitol. They didn't, they didn't stop him at all. They didn't even make the attempt. They, they could have led him to the door and said, we need you to get out. And he would have done so. Instead, they lead him to the Senate chamber. But he's an insurrectionist. Jacob Chansley, he's an insurrectionist. He gets four years in prison. And the cops that, quite frankly, if this really was such a crime, were accomplices in his crime, they get nothing. And that's sort of the major thing, one of the major things to take away from this. Just how little was done to stop these people one, how not violent the vast majority of them were, two, just how, you know, mundane of an event it was on the inside of the building, like, they were not just ransacking the whole cabinet, they were just walking around, and three, the police, if you didn't know any better, you'd look like, it looked like they were in on it, they were in on the insurrection, but nothing, so how is it that they can escort this man around the building, but he is, he gets the crime of trespassing. Wouldn't it be their job to remove him? How would he know he's trespassing if the literal police officers in charge of enforcing the law there enable him to break the law? It's not even like they just looked the other way while he did it. No, they enabled him. They took him to the Senate chamber instead of taking him to the exit. There's no way this was not an insurrection. I say it again. This was not an insurrection. And so it also exposed the double standard of the legal justice system and the corruption of it all. Tucker also interviewed one of the chief officers of the Capitol Guard, uh, Tariq Johnson, someone who should have been the first to be questioned about the event, uh, but up until now had never even been asked anything by people. Supposedly investigating January 6th and getting to the bottom of what happened that day. He, nothing happened. He goes over what he did. Uh, he, there was another, there was a woman by the name of Yogananda Pittman. She was above him and sort of the command chain, and she was the woman in charge of this capital security detail. She refused to comment. She failed to do her job while Tariq went above and beyond to do his. I mean, he was asking for help and you there's audio of him doing so him asking for help and it's not even that he gets a, a no there's just nobody responds on the frequency that they're supposed to be responding on he gets he gets radio silence and so even in spite of that he does his job and he goes above and beyond to do this from organizing An evacuation of the congressman out of the chamber to a a specified location by himself, because there were other officers there doing literally nothing. He comes along and organizes the evacuation himself. And when he was outside the building, he even donned a MAGA hat to navigate the crowd so he could retrieve a number of other officers who were boxed in at the top of the steps uh, by, the again, this massive crowd. But for the crime of wearing the hat, in in spite of everything he did, in spite of doing his job to the best of his ability, in spite of that, for the crime of wearing the hat, he was treated as though he was in on the riot. Even though you have literal officers escorting Jacob Chensley around, nothing happens to them, but this guy is treated as though he was suspect. So he resigns while Yogananda Pittman, who was, she gets promoted despite her abject failure to do her duty. So again, corruption gets exposed here and selective enforcement of the law gets imposed here and abuse of the law gets exposed here because this guy, uh, Tarek Johnson, he did literally nothing wrong. And you can see that on the video. And yet he is treated as though he was problematic. Then you have Ray Epps, again, exposing the two-tiered system of justice and the corruption. Ray Epps, who was once again brought to the forefront as a suspected federal agent, has yet to be investigated, even though he was caught on camera multiple times and on multiple instances, egging people on to enter the Capitol building. He bragged that he orchestrated people going into the Capitol, and yet nothing is done about him. He's not touched. He's not investigated. He's not serving time in jail. The QAnon shaman gets four years for being escorted on a private journey through the Capitol. This guy who literally says, we're going to go into the Capitol, literally trying to incite a riot. That is actual incitement to a riot. That's a crime. This guy goes free. And it's the corruption just gets exposed on a level that I think is scary to the people running our government. And you could tell that all this together being released at essentially the same time, because Tucker did this over the course of a, two parts, uh, back to back. You could tell this was a big deal, not just because it blew the lid off of all the lies we've been told about January 6th. Where it was an insurrection. And these people, they, they wanted to overthrow the government, and they were so violent, and it, it just blew the lid off that when you see the people inside the building they're just they're, they're walking around they're wandering they're looking at the paintings they're looking at oh the, look at the, the floors and the walls oh wow this is nancy pelosi's desk oh look at all the papers they say it really is just if you didn't know any better you'd say that it was like a a capitol hill inspired super mall it, that's ex- it, it, essentially what it looks like that's how i can describe what was going on in the inside you know, again, if you remove yourself from the context that this is the actual capital, you would have assumed that this was just a capital inspired super mall, and that they were just going on about their business, going from store to store because that's what it looked like. But the corruption of it all, the lies just blown off the lid on this thing. It wasn't just that, uh, you know, all these lies we've been told about January for the last two years or even because of how much we can see now that was deliberately withheld from us and from the public cuz we can it's these are things that should have been shown on day 1 there's no way you look at this footage and then say that the that Jacob Chansley is an insurrectionist when he's being escorted around by the police there's no way you can say these people are insurrectionists when they're just loitering around, loitering around in the Capitol, not trying to go find the politicians, that they, they they go up and do a prayer in the Senate chamber. Yeah, these are your insurrectionists, and they do a prayer to the police, thanking the police for letting them in the building. These are the insurrection, just the lies, the footage that we should have seen. Cause remember, Jay, they made the case. For two years that these people were trying to destroy democracy. But when you see the footage, the same footage that they've had access to for over two years now, when you see the footage, there's just no way anything that they said about these people could have been true. And there's no way you could come to those conclusions when you see the footage, which means that they lied. They lied and the entire country now can see that they lied. And from what we can tell, it's big by the response of the people in power, because they seem panicked. They are up fucking set about this. Chuck Schumer and bit, uh, uh, I I mean uh, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, they were both openly calling for the censorship of the January six footage and the removal of Tucker Carlson from Fox News. Schumer in particular named Rupert Murdoch specifically the per, the person who owns Fox News. He in his call for censorship, asking Murdoch directly to censor Tucker Carlson and not to let him go on air, which is a blatant violation of the First Amendment. Like we're we're not even pretending anymore, and that's how spooked they are that they would go out of their way to violate the First Amendment. Out of their way, so. That's how I can tell that this is that this is big, because they usually don't get spooked like this. But then again, when you see how much corruption, how much the double standard, and how much their own dereliction of duty just gets exposed by this mundane footage of people walking around, shoot, of course they'd be upset. Of course they'd be afraid. They tried to lock up regular people, and everyone can see that they're regular people now. They withheld the footage and only showed you the violent bits and edited them to make it seem more dramatic than they actually were. But when you see the footage of these people just walking around the Capitol, uh, you know, neatly picking up and putting down papers, leaving every time the Capitol police told them to leave an area and allowing themselves to be escorted out of the building when they had more than enough critical mass to take over the building uh, to the point where the military would have had to intervene. There's no way you can logically watch that and then come to the conclusion that these people were out to destroy democracy. Or that these people wanted to were out to end the lives of the politician. There's no way you can do that. Which and if you cannot watch that footage and come to that just and come to that conclusion, then you logically cannot excuse and justify the treatment that our government has had for these people. And the lack of due process that they've been given, where they've been thrown in a jail cell and just left there for two years with no trial, sentenced for crimes that were not committed, sentenced for crimes that the police aided them in committing if they did commit. Again, Jacob Chansley being escorted around the building. He gets four years. The officers that allow him to do so and escort him around, they get nothing. So the deliberate vilification and demonization of the American public is just exposed for the evil that it is. There's no justification for what these people did for the last two years. And that's why I think they're spooked because now everybody can see who they really are. And that's why I think this is huge. I think that we have not seen the last of the fallout from this event. And, uh, it's, I think that this is proof behind a shadow of a doubt that they want to hide this footage. They want, they wanted to hide. They wanted to hide this footage. If Congress and the J six committee were giving us the truth about January 6th, then the release of this footage would just prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were correct. So why would they want to hide the footage? Unless they were not telling us the truth. And I, I think we can safely say that they were lying because all of the footage that we were seen, that we were shown on Tucker Carlson was also seen by the January 6th committee. And the reason we know that is because there was a digital bookmark left on the video files. So we know that they saw what we saw. They saw it all. Which means that they went out of their way to paint these people as enemies of the state. And that, I believe, is the crime that they are afraid of the public coming to terms with. That they deliberately lied about the American people for the purpose of prosecuting the American people on charges, and for crimes that they did not commit. A violation, a blatant violation of due process. Political prisoners. Tyranny. They are afraid of having their tyranny exposed. See, they're not afraid of being tyrants. They're afraid of us seeing them as tyrants. But if we can see them for ty- as tyrants, and we can see these people at January 6th, were not insurrectionists, well then that makes these people who lied about the J6 protesters liars. And if the people in January 6 were not insurrectionists but were instead there primarily for peaceful purposes, well suddenly if they're not insurrectionists, that validates them enough to figure out why they were there. Why were you on the Capitol? If you weren't there to incite an insurrection, a deadly insurrection, and that's a question that I don't think our government wants people in this country asking. Because that question has one answer. The 2020 election. They were here to protest. The certification of the 2020 election, not the government, not to overthrow the government, but to prevent the verification and the certification of what they believed, and I say rightfully so, of a fraudulent election that was not done by the books, there was lots of funny business and games going on in that election, that warrant, you know, holding off on the certification of that election. They do not want the American public to realize that that was the true purpose and intention of the January 6th protesters. Because if That is allowed to make its way out into the general knowledge. Well, then the conversation moves to, well, why do you feel that way? Then you start to get all the shenanigans that went down in 2020 refreshed in people's minds as well. Just like how this footage being released has refreshed everyone's minds on January 6th, except it's cast in a new light because we're able to see more of the footage, If the 2020 election gets rehashed now that we've had a few years of hindsight, and people are once again exposed to the issues and the shenanigans and the problems that went down with that election, well, I have a feeling a lot of people will suddenly feel that the protesters on January 6th were at least partially justified in wanting a halt on the certification of that election but if the 2020 election is allowed to be called into question well that calls into question the legitimacy of just about everyone in in government that calls into question biden's legitimacy the so-called president and i think that's one of the i think that is at the top of the list of reasons on, on top of the tyranny part i think that is at the top of the list as per why they are so afraid of people seeing January 6th rioters and protesters as not insurrectionists, but as protesters and rioters with legitimate grievances. That's a danger to their power. But we will see what comes of this. We will see what comes of this. And Uh, The fact that there was 41,000 hours of unseen footage after two years of this January 6th kangaroo court, this committee, which was supposedly to get to the bottom of what happened in January 6th, 41,000 hours of unseen footage or unreleased footage because they had seen it. The fact that there was that much footage and the fact that the footage had content like this, which completely exonerates a lot of these people speaks for itself about what that committee was actually there to accomplish, and it was not to find the truth. They lied. They lied. But now we get to our final story of the day, which is that China has brought the multipolar world to the Middle East. And what do I say that? I say that because China, in one of the biggest stories, in a, a week of pretty big stories, I'll say, has brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The two countries will restore diplomatic ties and reopen embassies within the next two months. They have also committed to respecting the sovereignty of each other as well as neighboring countries. So it seems like this long period of rapprochement, and that's, that's sort of the the main context of the deal, They. they it's probably just a baseline for other things to come later on down the line between Arabia and Iran, between China and Iran and China and Arabia, you know. But that's the big deal. That's the big deal. Uh, oh, oh, that's a pun. <laughs> it's a deal and it's a big deal. That's the big deal. But that's what was done. So it seems like this long period of reproachment that we've been observing between Iran and Arabia over the past two years has reached what I feel is a pretty satisfactory conclusion. And I'm happy to have covered it over the course of these two years because now I get to talk about this in light of what we've seen so far. So it's a, it's a good day. It's a very good day. And I'll also say that in the shadow of this good day are all of the many, many ramifications, because though this new reality has a lot of huge ramifications. First off, this is huge for Yemen, as they have been ground zero for a proxy war being fought between Saudi Arabia and Iran, with Iran backing the Houthis, and Arabia leading its own military coalition into Yemen. So now with the two biggest regional sponsors for this war, the United States and Israel are a sponsor as well, but with the two biggest regional sponsors now making amends with one another, the war in Yemen is likely to come to a conclusion in the near future. Now, whether that's by Iran and Arabia disengaging and leaving the two sides in Yemen to fight it out themselves, or by Arabia and Iran brokering some kind of peace deal there it looks like the war in yemen is on its way out and that's huge for yemen because they've been fighting there for a while so if that war ends they can finally put that conflict and that violence behind them and you know get to work of building their nation but it's also huge And it's, I I would say, even bigger, even huger, if you will. This development is also huge for Syria. Because over the past two years, we've witnessed the detente between Arabia and the Assad government in Syria. Where Arabia, who previously were opposed to Assad and, and were working to undermine him, in Syria, backing other factions and peoples in the Civil War, Arabia has since stopped trying to do that. And they've instead started opening up diplomatic ties with the Assad government in Syria. And with this breakthrough between them and Iran, because Iran was with Assad almost from day one, backing them up, so the Syrian Civil War essentially served as yet another proxy between iran and arabia and for an idea of sort of the the rivalry between iran and arabia and why this is important yemen was a proxy war uh isis was a proxy war isis being against arabia uh, and be leaving iran alone because iran was giving them oil and then turkey was oddly enough buying oil from them so you isis was a proxy war The Iraq-Iran War was a proxy war. Then you had, again, you have the Syrian Civil War. So, you have multiple wars here. Multiple wars. And on each occasion, you see both of these countries on opposing sides. But now... Now you see these two coming together. And that has massive ramifications in the places where they were fighting their proxy wars. Because again, Syria was one of those proxy wars. Iran was backing the Assad government. Arabia was backing groups trying to overthrow the Assad government. But with them, with this breakthrough between Arabia and Iran, it is likely that Arabia and Iran... And I'm probably going to be saying that a lot for this segment, that <laughs> those two will work together to put an end to the civil war and in terms, on terms that are favorable to the very same government that the US, Israel, and Arabia were all trying to overthrow, that being the government of Bashar al-Assad. And then you add to that more recent attempts at rapprochement between Turkey and Syria, where the where Erdogan, the president of Turkey, wanted direct talks with Bashar al-Assad, he too was trying to overthrow Assad's government for the past few years and has made a U-turn now and is trying to set up and re-establish diplomatic ties with Syria. When you combine what we're seeing between Arabia and Iran with this attempt between Turkey to mend relations with Syria as well, it's a near guarantee that the civil war will end soon it's almost a guarantee and you had russia and iran backing them russia still supports syria militarily as well so you have this broader regional consolidation behind the assad government which is exactly what assad and quite frankly any other faction in the war would have needed to finally bring this war to a close and then when we zoom out even further we see that turkey syria and iran are all aligning with russia on various levels you have a gas hub for turkey you have the military intervention and assistance in syria on the part of russia uh well russia's doing all this they, they're the ones with the gas hub for Turkey. They did this military intervention for Syria back in 2014, 2015. And then you have collaboration between Russian troops in Syria and Iranian militias in Syria, as well as Russia, now that they're fighting the war with Ukraine, purchasing more Iranian drones. So you see this major alignment on various different, primarily military, but economic means as well. And at the same time, We see Iran again and Saudi Arabia aligning with China, where, and this is primarily economic in nature, as are most of China's interactions with the rest of the world, where China is buying so much Iranian oil that they've single-handedly resurrected Iran's oil industry, and they're cutting deals with Arabia to buy Arabia's oil in yuan, which completely undermines the petrodollar, which is why people are so obsessed with that happening. It's not not that I think China's deliberately trying to undermine the petrodollar, but more so that they're trying to get out and get other countries out from under the sanctions regime, so to speak. Because that's bad for China's business. If they're doing trade with a country and then we just sanction them, and the economy of the country that China's doing trade with collapses, well that hurts china's economy so from a business perspective it's good if you can just do trade with our currency instead of us having to go through that third country's trade uh, that third country's currency to do trade with you how about you just accept our currency instead and we we do this ourselves we have digital banking we don't need the petrodollar mm-hmm. and that's the bribe and it's going to work i'll say that much as well because china is the second largest oil consumer on the planet but what makes them more significant in this arena specifically is because the united states produces a lot of the oil that it consumes so even when and that works both ways for us so our consumption is primarily american and because of how much we consume it doesn't leave too much room for other countries to export their oil to us and then even when america is a net energy exporter because we consume so much of the energy uh, that that doesn't make us too big of a player on the international energy markets either but that's a plus and a minus because it means we have a lot of insulation from energy prices so china being a massive energy importer and the second largest energy consumer combined with arabia being a massive energy exporter because they don't have the market at home to consume it and china doesn't have the production at home to satisfy their their consumption they go together very naturally in a way that the united states wouldn't but then again we wouldn't necessarily want to be in either of their situations anyway it's just a fact of the countries you're dealing with So when you have China coming in, buying up all this oil, and saying, you know what, why don't you just accept our currency for that? It undermines the petrodollar. But you can see this broader shuffling of all these countries, primarily around the leaders of the multipolar world, Russia and China. And this is something that I think goes just flies over the head of a lot of other analysts. Uh, Oh, look at me. Uh, promoting myself to the level of an analyst, but this is something I see going over their head. And I, I mention it a lot when I talk about how other people view the multipolar world. They think it's United States, Russia, China, maybe India, maybe the EU, that's it. No, 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 no. It's much bigger than that. It's United States, it's Russia, it's Turkey, Arabia, Iran, it's Japan, Germany, France, Britain. It's China, India, it's Egypt, Brazil, Argentina. Countries asserting their own sovereignty for their own interests. Multiple poles of power. Not just us versus them. That's bipolar. People still view the multipolar world in bipolar terms. Which is why they don't understand it the multipolar world is multipolar multiple poles of power and that's what we're seeing take place in the middle east here now russia and china are the leaders of that movement but they are not the hegemons right it's not that russia now in russia's backyard they're a hegemon okay let's not pretend russia has hegemony over the caucasus russia has a consensual hegemony over the central asia uh, they all accept Russia being there and trust Russia more than anybody else. And Russia has hegemony in Eastern Europe. Let's not, let's not play pretend, but it's not like when Russia interfaces faces with Egypt and Sudan, where they just got a new port on the red sea, they're not hegemons there and they're not trying to be. It's just multiple poles of power with Russia and China as its leaders. People have discounted Russia entirely, which is a grave mistake. They are a great power. And they go, it's the US and China. China's doing this. Oh, all this is great for China. Oh, Russia's real enemy is China. Russia's a declining power. It's China that we really need to be worried about. And no, it's Russia and China. And that much is constantly made clear. Russia handles the security. China handles the finance. And Russia builds up its own economy and its industry, and even by itself, they're more industrialized than the rest of NATO. Look at the military production. They are not some junior partner here. In terms of economics, they are. They're definitely a junior power. But they're a massive player in their own right. Energy, raw materials, military. China doesn't have those. And so, they have... A form a symbiotic relationship, but the multipolar world led by Russia and China has arrived in the Middle East. It has arrived because when you see what the integration with Russia, when you see the integration with China, and you you now see this massive deal between Arabia and Iran, Arabia which was being used as a proxy by the United States against Iran and against Syria, and against Iraq too, and Afghanistan. But when you see this, you see that this massive pseudo-coalition, which is being formed by all these countries and these overlapping interests, not even by deliberate force, but just these overlapping economic interests and political interests, and in some terms military interests, they are by various military, political, and economic means squeezing America out of the region and therefore out of the picture. We're the ones disrupting the trade by creating violence and chaos everywhere. That's not conducive to economic development. And that's the primary goal here, is for them all to get richer. Which, when you have oil wealth and you're still trying to get richer, well, at at the very least, goodness, at the very least you have the well-being of your country in mind and you haven't grown complacent, not too complacent, But everyone in this region wants economic development. China is offering that, and Russia's offering the energy necessary to make it happen. Russia's offering up the the security necessary to make it happen, because they're the ones combating us in the military sense. And Iran does that on a little bit as well, too. China offers up the economic incentive. So, bit by bit, America's being squeezed out. And when, once America is gone... And that day is coming both from external and internal factors in the United States. I don't think this is sustainable. Where we're giving billions of dollars to Ukraine and we have trains derailing in Ohio. Something's got to give. And if I know the people living in my country well enough, it ain't going to be us. <laughs> the Ukrainians are just going to have to go pound sand along with everyone else. And that's how this is going to go down. So, so, America will be squeezed out of this region one way or the other. That day is coming. But when America is gone, that leaves Israel isolated and quite frankly contained. And I I don't just say isolated and contained for no reason, because obviously America not being there and Arabia switching sides would naturally isolate them. But what, how are they contained? Well, What can Israel do to Syria once the war is over? Especially when Syria has Russia, Iran, Arabia, and now Turkey backing it. What can Israel do to them? Without provoking a region-wide coalition against Israel. Without provoking a region-wide sanctions regime against Israel. They can't do anything. What can they do to Iran? Now that the Saudis, Israel's unofficial ally in the region... Are making peace with Iran. Especially if especially when Syria's civil war is over as well, when they can't just fly over Syrias airspace willy-nilly. What can they do to Iran? They can't do anything. So what? They just they limit they limit the violations of their neighbors to Jordan and Lebanon? Oh wow, you're attacking the weakest countries in the region. That's going to get you a lot of great favor. With everyone around you. No. Israel will be contained. By these developments. The. And. It'll be better for them. You know. To not be at war with their neighbors. And it'll be better for their neighbors. To not get bombed every day. It seems like. It really does seem. The forever wars are finally. Coming to an end. Iran. Syria. Syria. And China walk away from this as the big winners and from this deal specifically between I- Arabia and Iran those are the big winners Iran Syria and China whilst Qatar Bahrain Kuwait and the UAE are also winners in their own right and that they would be caught between Arabia and Iran in the event of an actual war between those two countries and then there's Russia Yemen Iraq Lebanon and Jordan who are all minor winners here as well. But make no mistake, this is, this is an earthquake, people. This is a geopolitical earthquake, and the consequences of which will be seen and felt for decades to come. But that, my lovely listeners, my lovely, lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I say it every time, but man, is it more, important, uh, more apparent today than it has been on most other occasions. The world is changing. The multipolar world has arrived, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.